The high level of executive pay has been a media and political target for years. In the first week of this year, the UK's FTSE 100 CEOs earned more than the typical full-time worker will earn over the entire year. But are CEOs paid too much? Should they be paid less? But would that not cause them to leave for foreign firms or private firms? Executive pay, market or racket? These questions were at the centre of a recent event hosted by London Business School's Centre for Corporate Governance. High-profile international speakers from academia, business and politics joined us to discuss the current state of executive pay. The focus was on three principal themes. The level of pay, or quantum, the structure of pay, and whether it encourages long-term behaviour, and the process of pay setting, how boards make decisions on executive pay. Should these be changed? And if so, how? Dirk Genter, Associate Professor of Finance at the London School of Economics, opened the discussion. He presented an evidence-based perspective on the quantum of executive pay, controversially suggesting that the high levels of executive pay today can be justified in a number of ways. He highlighted the risks of attempting to reduce financial incentives for senior executives. I hope to have convinced you that, and you knew that already, that CEOs and other top executives are paid a lot and that it has increased a lot over the last 40 years. I also want to remind you and maybe ask you to not claim today that nobody can be worth 10 million pounds a year. Because, yes, people can. Um, it's not at all difficult to imagine a situation where somebody is worth 10 million pounds a year. Because always remember, 1% of 10 billion is 100 million. Right? So just because numbers are large doesn't mean they can't be justified. And economics suggests that CEO pay should be between two numbers. At a minimum, we got to pay the CEO as much as she could earn elsewhere. Otherwise, she's going to leave. Number two, we should not pay her more than her value added to the firm, right? Com compared to what she adds compared to the next best candidate. Now, the truth also is uh, this might be a pretty wide range. In a perfectly competitive market, these two things are one and the same, right? Because we have this very large supply of super talented people out there who are competing for the job. And on the other side of the market, you've got these many firms who are competing with each other for the talents of these people. And then these outside options, what people can earn in other firms, ends up being exactly what their value added is. In reality, companies do hire from a relatively small pool of people. And different companies look at a very different pool of people which means you don't have 100 candidates out there and you don't have 100 companies competing for the services of one executive. It's relatively small numbers on both sides. And that suggests that there might be a relatively wide range here in which corporate governance, CEO power, rent extraction might still be playing a role. At the same time, you do want to be very, very careful. If you force companies to go below that, you might be losing exactly that very, very talented executive and you might be doing an awful lot of damage. But Professor Genta's comments ruffled some feathers among practitioners working with the investment and business community in an effort to ensure that capitalism serves society as a whole, not just the elites. Deandra Subia, head of responsible investment at Nest, said that you couldn't just look at CEO pay in a vacuum. She warned, 
that the disparity of pay between those at the top and bottom of a company needs to be taken into account, or eventually the social backlash would be widely felt. She also talked about the importance of employee ownership schemes, which reward workers for company productivity and share price rises. This, she argued, could reduce the anger at CEO compensation. We've seen strong bull runs over the years from investment markets. And as a result of that, CEOs have been handsomely rewarded. But unfortunately, we don't think workers in those very companies and society at large have been rewarded just as much as CEOs have been. Success is generated by all people in the company, including workers. So Nest very much takes a wider lens to this conversation. And it's really important that we put this in context of how pay is disseminated across the organisation, how workers are rewarded. It's all very well having extremely high pay, and yes, at times it may well be justified, but if those very companies aren't paying the living wage, for example, we have a very, very big issue with that. And are they justified? Like I just said, no, because we don't see the same kind of reward going to wider society. As I've just said, we've got nearly 9 million members. They are predominantly on low to middle income. The average salary of our members is £20,000. It's a huge reputational issue for Nest when we see these types of headlines making the press. The companies that our members are invested in pay out millions of pounds to those CEOs. It's, it's very difficult to kind of, you know, justify that and have that conversation with Ed members. And should it be reined in? I think it definitely should, should be made fairer. It should be better structured and it should incentivise the right kinds of behaviours. I think... What we've seen is that the way pay has been ratcheted up, it's actually incentivised wrong behaviours. And I think, again, that's a problem. Stefan Stern, former director of the High Pay Centre, also questioned the disproportionate pay gap between top executives and their workers. He said that a company's share price moves for many reasons, many of them outside the control of the CEO. He questioned the high levels of reward through bonuses that these top executives can currently access if certain share price targets are met, referencing one influential research paper which got a lot of traction. I'm a little bit more sceptical than Dirk, although I do obviously have to accept the weight of the evidence he gave. I don't know if you've seen the work by Steve Young at Lancaster, a 10-year study into... FTSE 350 performance, where he found, and the word he used, I think, was negligible, negligible connection between CEO pay and the performance of companies when measured by return on invested capital, which I think is probably a tougher measure than the share price-based rewards, total shareholder return, because share prices clearly move for a whole host of reasons, many of which, perhaps most of which, beyond the control of the CEO. Why, in that case, are we giving disproportionately large rewards to one human being called CEO, when actually all these big decisions, if the governance is right, are being taken collectively. I do think leadership matters. I've written a little book about leadership. It's very important. I don't think it's necessarily quite as important as you were perhaps indicating. So, the Lancaster study, which was actually authored not just by Steve Young, but also by Wei Jiali, although female collaborators too often get ignored, claims to show that there is no perceivable link between CEO pay and company performance. And it's not the only prominent study in recent years that claims this conclusion. But is this really true? Even though I'm an academic, I have to admit 
that you really have to be careful with academic research. You can almost always find an academic study to prove whatever you want to prove. That's confirmation bias. The quality of research is key, and that Lancaster study was never peer-reviewed or published anywhere. Indeed, it's not even available on the author's websites anymore. They seem to have withdrawn it. Here are the flaws that I pointed out. But the problem with these studies is they make one crucial omission, which is when they link pay to performance, they look at the change in your salary and maybe your change in other what I call flow-based pay, so new bonuses or new equity grants. And so those indeed don't really change much. So maybe famously Steve Jobs got paid $1 per year at Apple, regardless of how Apple performed, so that would seem to be no linkage between pay and performance. But in fact, the vast majority of your incentives don't come from the flow of new pay coming in, but the stock of existing wealth that you have, and actually stock, that's quite a nice name here because the stock is your shares, the stock and options that you already have in your company that provides a ton of incentives. So even if your salary is fixed at $1 per year, Steve Jobs had hundreds of millions of dollars in his company, and so that's what would have gone down substantially had Apple underperformed. We can't just look at one anecdote, as Stefan Stern mentioned this morning. So if we look at in general, in terms of the data, in the US, if there's a 10% fall in the stock price, that's equivalent to a pay cut of $10 million in the US. And it's about 1.2 million pounds in the UK. So how do I get that? So the average holding in equity is 6.6 .6 million, 10% fall, that's 660,000. So at a 45% tax rate, if you're receiving a um, pay of this, Post-tax, that gives you the same amount. So CEOs don't seem to be indifferent to poor performance. They're indeed held accountable. So pay is definitely correlated with performance. But the question is, should it be? And is pay currently linked to the right measures of performance? Or does it simply encourage short-term misbehaviour that is not helpful and potentially damaging to the wider company its workforce and customers. That's an argument I explore later. But now, let's look at the commercial realities of pay. After all, CEOs and board-level executives are a very select and elite group. They are highly educated and earn their stripes from decades of successfully holding senior and challenging roles. What incentivizes these people who are in demand by the biggest companies? Is it all about how much money they can earn? Or are they motivated by other factors? Nikki Demby, a partner at Stork and May, said it's complex. While she argued that few executives are solely motivated by pay, her comments suggest that competitiveness over pay levels with peers in other organisations is a big factor. I think the first thing I would bring to the debate is there is a very, very limited subset of people who are truly and exclusively motivated by pay. I call them coin-operated, but there are very, very few of those. Almost all of the people that I'm working with who are exclusively senior executives, that's the area that we specialise in, are interested in the next business challenge, the next problem to solve the intellectual challenge, how will they thrive? What is the community of people they're going to be working with? Or what is the business challenge? So they're very much stimulated by the business challenge. 
when we get to the point of talking to people about the pay offer that's been made to them, they want to understand it because there are very different pay models in different organisations. In UK-quoted companies for executive directors, we've conformed to a norm, but that is absolutely not commonplace deeper into businesses. They want to understand it and they want to believe that they're being treated fairly. Non-executive director of the estate agents Foxton's, Alan Giles, agreed that intrinsic competitiveness of the types of people who operate at executive level puts pressure on pay levels. As chairman of the Remuneration Consultants Group, which was set up more than 10 years ago to develop and review standards with regard to the conduct and role of remuneration consultants, Giles has a long track record of executive and non-executive roles in the boardroom of the UK's largest businesses. This is what he had to say. In my experience, both having been a CEO and also been on boards and chaired remuneration committees for a number of years, most chief executives innately want to do a good job. So I think there's an element of a hygiene factor around the package. However, and there are a couple of caveats to this, I'm a great believer that you can't expect a chief executive or an executive director to be a good negotiator on behalf of the organisation and not be a good negotiator on behalf of themselves. So when it comes to that fateful time at a remuneration committee where you're talking about the chief executive's package, he or she is partially in negotiation mode. And secondly, I think most executive directors are innately competitive. And one of the downsides of transparency and disclosure is there is a lot of data out there. And not many people think of themselves as being below average. We would only need to do a poll when we go around the room is to whether think they're above average or below average drivers, and they're all going to think they're above average. And equally, not many remuneration committee chairs think that their executives are below average, because if they did think that, they'd be doing something about it and they'd be moving those executives on. So I think there are a couple of downsides of the extreme transparency that we've brought in with the disclosure. Well, there might be the commercial reality of setting executive pay to attract what a board perceives to be the best talent for a business. But that is unlikely to mute the rising anger at that high level of management rewards, especially with increasing examples of executives rewarded even when their businesses are visibly struggling and even accused of directly being responsible for their collapse. Rachel Reeves, Labour MP and Chair of the House of Commons Select Committee for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, has been campaigning for many years for government initiatives to address rising income inequality and close the wealth gap in the UK. She was not sympathetic to executives concerned about the fairness of their pay plans, asking, what about fairness for ordinary workers whose wages haven't risen in years? I think fairness is the key issue, mm. that people should be rewarded for, for doing a good job, but that also goes for ordinary workers doing their jobs. And average pay is just under £30,000 a year. Mm. So on, I think, the 3rd of January, a chief executive had already been paid as much 
as an ordinary worker gets paid during the course of a whole year. Mm. It would take over 100 years for the average worker to earn what a FTSE 100 chief executive earns in a year. I represent a constituency in Leeds in West Yorkshire. An average pay in my constituency is about £20,000 a year. So it would take 200 years for somebody in Leeds West on average earnings there to earn what a FTSE 100 chief executive earns in a year. And I, I totally recognise that uh, if a company does well, then the chief executive should do well. But what about the ordinary people who work for those businesses? Because actually the success of a company depends not just on one man, and usually is a man at the top of that business. It depends on everybody pulling their weight and, and doing their best. And most people could never earn what someone at the top could do. And, and, and I don't want to have a system where everyone is paid the same. I'm not a communist. But I would like to have a system where the rewards are a little bit more uh, evenly distributed. My own belief, backed by years of academic research and the focus of my new book, Grow the Pie, is that when business works for all stakeholders, wider society as well as shareholders, then all benefit in a win-win situation. But that's very different from three to five year incentive plans that only pay off if the CEO hits certain targets. Evidence shows that CEOs take short-term actions, such as cutting research and development, to hit these targets. In other words, Targets cause the CEO to focus on the target and ignore other relevant measures of performance. That's the advantage of paying the CEO according to the long-term stock price. Almost all measures of performance ultimately show up in the long-term stock price, so it's comprehensive. So a CEO who's paid according to long-term value will care deeply about workforce engagement, productivity and corporate culture as well as the communities in which that business operates. Introduce share ownership to all employees and motivate everyone to strive for long-term success together. Sound too good to be true? Is there a catch? And what does this mean for incentive schemes? Tom Gosling is a partner at PwC, Executive Fellow at London Business School, and on the steering committee of the Purposeful Company, which aims to embed purpose into the heart of business. He believes that restricted stock plans, those based on executives being able to buy company stock at fair market value or at a discount at some point in the future, are the way forward. With the caveat that there's not a one-size-fits-all and all of those kind of normal things, I do think that a model based on restricted stock would be a better normal model than, than the model we've, we've got at the moment. But I do think that the way that we're going about it is a little bit flawed. To answer your question directly about why do only 5% of, of, of companies do it at the moment, our research suggested that probably around half would like to. Maybe a consensus across the market was that this could work for about a quarter of companies. So there's still a big gap. The practical reality behind the gap is that there's currently a mismatch in expectations between what companies and executives would like to get out of this change and what investors would like to get out of it. And there are even mismatches between investors. The response to Tom's comments from our guests in the investment community highlighted some of the challenges to making sweeping changes to widespread incentive scheme practice. Jessica Ground, Global Head of Stewardship at Schroeder's, said she was a proponent of restricted stock in theory, but warned about the unintended consequences of imposing it on every company. 
with the caveat that I am very pro-restricted stock, I do think on our side of the fence, we are quite mindful that when we have had changes introduced in the past before, the magical outcome has been that quantum has increased. You know, I started my career, we were all outraged about Centric and, and Cedric the pig, and that was, you know, a quarter of a million pound payment. We're still getting outraged when, um, you know, we've got many multiple times. So to be fair, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that I wanted to raise. It's not if it is a good idea, but how we get there. Yeah. And you know, how do we get there without getting the bloody noses that you know, more transparency sounded great, that was gonna drive mm. down pay. All that happened that is, yeah. you know, how many times is, we really have above average CEO, we think he, she, it is underpaid globally. You know, so how do we adopt sort of innovative new things without the unintended consequences that we've had when we've adopted change before? Kalina Lazarova, Director of Responsible Investment for BMO Global Asset Management, play devil's advocate. We have a degree of transparency and a way of checking, and of course it's not perfect, and it, it very often falls down. Uh, but we do have the targets in many instances, and we can check whether they were met or not. Obviously, in the restricted share scheme, even, even one which has some kind of underpin or some level of remuneration committed discretion attached to it, that, to a great extent, introduces, again, a sort of black box into the system where you do need to, to trust the judgment of the remuneration committee to a great degree in instances where discretion is applied to produce or increase the award, if that's an element of it, because there will probably be quite a lot of those schemes if this were to become a widespread uh, system. And that could be difficult, particularly for, for those investors who are not on the top of the shareholder register of, of large companies, because they typically do not get face time with remuneration committee chairs as often. So being able to develop that trust and to sustain it is probably going to be an issue for many. Finally, our keynote speaker, Steve Kaplan, of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, an advocate of the market approach to executive pay, returned to what he believes is the real challenge for CEOs, the social pressure from rising wealth and income inequality. He argued that CEOs, in general, deserve their high pay and have been rewarded for good corporate performance. He warned that increasing political, social, and media pressure on CEO pay would, and is already, chasing the most talented leaders into other sectors, like private equity, where they can earn even more money without the scrutiny. How have companies performed? This is also, this like baffles me. It's a real inconsistency. In the US, corporate profits, relative to GDP are kind of at all-time highs. And the capital share of profits in pretty much in around the world and the developed countries is at an all-time high. What does that mean? It means companies are really doing a good job. And they're doing a good job and possibly using technology and globalization. And they're doing such a good job that income inequality has gone up. So it's, it's a funny thing that people don't sort of put the two together. The reason income inequality has gone up, a big reason is corporations are doing a great job. Now, that doesn't mean income inequality is good. It becomes a real problem, particularly I think in the, the middle class who's been hurt by technology and globalization. And that's the problem that is very hard to solve that Rachel was unhappy about and rightfully so. I'm not sure what the solution is, but it's not that 
corporations are, are doing badly, it's actually because they're doing so well. So summary, three perceptions. CEOs are paid more and more. They're not paid for performance. Boards don't penalize CEOs for poor performance. Those are all false, and these are true facts. And the real challenge is that I think you've got this market for talent that pushes rewarding the top people a lot. And that has these pay levels very high. It's in the US, it's obviously here. And you've got this rise in top incomes and inequality, but you've got these high pay levels which are very visible. You have the examples of bad behavior and the lackluster gains for the middle class create this real criticism and it is a real challenge. So if you're a public company now, you've got to pay enough to retain or hire the talented people. You've got to pay for performance, but then you've got to stay within the outrage constraints and your shareholders, and it's really hard. And I think that's part of the reason private equity has been picking up share is because they can operate a little bit under the radar or do things or not get hit by all this. Paul Coombs? chair of the London Business School Centre for Corporate Governance, summed up. He said that, on balance, the evidence seemed to suggest that pay is more driven by market than racket. However, he acknowledged that, even if the economics of pay are justifiable, the high levels executives can earn is socially divisive, probably more so in Europe than in the US. And it's the growing gap which makes the winner-takes-all phenomenon more apparent particularly in the public markets. He pointed out that the solution needs to focus on improving productivity more broadly in order to allow companies to raise worker wages while remaining competitive. So as you can see, executive pay is a topic on which there are many different views. And so that's the role of academic research to put the facts on the table so that when we make these difficult decisions, we have knowledge about the relevant trade-offs. And so that was the motivation to write my new book, Grow the Pie, how great companies deliver both purpose and profit to make these facts accessible for a practitioner audience. There's a chapter on executive pay, but also on many other topics. But I recognise that not everybody is able to buy a book in these difficult times. And indeed, on the website growthepie.net, I've put a lot of free articles that I've written and talks on responsible business that are accessible to anybody who's interested in the topic. And more than that, the LBS Centre for Corporate Governance's website, which is london.edu slash ccg, has academic research and practitioner articles on many aspects of responsible business, executive pay, boards of directors, investor stewardship and the like. And I hope that whatever your focus is in terms of corporate governance, whether you're an investor, a policymaker, an executive, or a citizen just interested in this topic, that some of this material will be of interest to you. Thank you very much for listening.